Dr. Ron, unfiltered, uncensored, with host Dr. Ron and Dr. Jerry, bringing you a, an extra program this week uh, because we have some information from a Dr. Dalrymple, and we'll talk about him uh, in a little bit. So with an attitude of gratitude, I want to welcome everybody because we know that gratitude not only boasts joy and general life satisfaction, it is also the single best predictor of good relationships and benefits both sanity and physical health. Ladies and gentlemen, this program contains general medical information. The medical information heard on this program is not advice and should not be treated as such. The information is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should never delay seeking medical advice, disregard medical advice, or discontinue medical treatment because of information heard on this program. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this program with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician. That being said, let's uh, start the show by welcoming our our co-host and uh, contributor, Dr. Jerry Smith. Good afternoon, Dr. Jerry. Thank you. It's a lovely day. The sun is out and there's very few chemtrails, so it's a good day. Excellent, and, and you know what? Be, uh, we're, we're waiting for Dr. Dalrymple, who, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be contacting us from Great Britain. I uh, just want to say that you know, for the past years now, I've been telling you, you uh, have to be the CEO of your own body. In other words, you have to have control and and listen to your body also. And uh, something was brought to my attention yesterday in Pennsylvania, Dr. Jerry, in Pennsylvania. There's a bill in Pennsylvania now that would allow physician assistants to open up their own offices without supervision. That's now, good. <laughs> physician assistants average 750 hours of training. Medical doctors average 4,000 hours of training. Now, there's no doubt, you know, we, we talk about the deficiencies, but 
you know, we're, we're, what would you rather have? A person that's been trained 750 hours or fly an airplane or one that has 4,000 air miles? So people in Pennsylvania, you really have to watch uh, and, and be educated about what's happening. Uh, well, as, long as, Jerry, as, just, as long as they have offices in Walmart, it'll be okay. Well, that, yeah, I, well, you, you broke the code, and that, that, that's, that's the plan, to, to right. do away with physicians and have them do, work for the insurance companies, Walmarts, uh, Kmarts, what have you. And, uh, and, as and long as they have Bill, discount pu- coupons for the surgery. <laughs> isn't it crazy? I mean, it is just yeah. absolutely crazy where we're headed. Well, you know, I know you had two successes this week. I had one success. I had a call this morning from a dear friend and, and an avid listener of this program that her PET scan is completely free of all cancer, and uh, she's feeling great. She's feeling up. And people say, well, what was her success? Well, her success was uh, a natural lifestyle uh, with uh lots of herbs and so forth. And also when we had Dr. Ralph Moss on the program, uh, she, she had consulted with him and between the two of them, they, uh, they had a very successful treatment of her esophageal cancer. Dr. Jerry, I see Dr. Dalrymple is uh, on the, the board. I want to try and bring him in. Uh, Dr. Dalrymple, is that you, sir? Yes, it is. Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is, uh, like I said, this is an extra sh- podcast for us this week, and uh, I do appreciate your uh, trusting us and bringing you this extra podcast. Uh, this is uh, something that was, came across my email uh, about Dr. Uh, Theodore Dalrymple. Uh, he uh, turned a critical eye on the New England Journal of Medicine for a full year, and during that year, he found a list of dubious premises, outright mistakes, and dangerous cultural political correctness that he felt had to be uh, said. And uh, he has a new expose out titled False Positive, A Year of Error, Omission, Political Correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. And before I introduce him, I want to read two things uh, that we've talked about on this podcast during the last five years. The first one is from 1988. Dr. Dalrymple, you might appreciate this. This is from a uh, Montreal anthropologist named Coco Butterworth, and he penned an article called IPOTA, I-P-P-O-T-A, which stands for Inverted Pyramidal Proliferation of Theoretical Assumptions. And he says that this is far worse than any disease that has ever plagued the human race the building or proliferation of ludicrous suppositions upon a pointed foundation that is both aesthetic and shaky, asthenic and shaky. So not to go into this whole uh, article because we want to hear from Dr. Dalrymple, but just reading the the last paragraph of it, he says, when reading scientific articles, always be on the alert for the following words or phrases. Finding suggests, indicates, seems to suggest, theorizes, Perhaps might mean all evidence points to. We can assume future studies should verify and so forth. So unfortunately, many theoretical assumptions have been built up, added to, and augmented, and then presented as scientific fact. So that's from 1988. And then from uh, from 2008, here we go with uh, when we started analyzing modern medicine, 
and the so-called scientific system. Well, there's there's a dark truth that's been hiding out there, ladies and gentlemen. We told you about this years ago. Uh, there are two editors of prestigious and respected medical journals in the world, and during their long careers, they have read and scrutinized more studies than any doctor, researcher, or bureaucrat, or any medical blogger. And this is what they have written. One, it is, quote, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reach slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as editor of, wait to hear this, the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Marsha Angel. She wrote that in 2009. And the second one, the case against scientific against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. Not to go into that, but that was uh, penned by Dr. Richard Horton, editor-in-chief of no less than The Lancet. So, Dr. Dalrymple, uh, this is Dr. Ron, and we also have my co-host, Dr. Jerry, on the line. Uh, your 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 uh, CV is astonishing. I don't know where to start. Uh, you, I, I imagine you also speak French. Uh, you you uh, were a prison doctor. You're a board-certified psychiatrist. Uh, you have written um, many, many uh, articles, and you've penned a, a lot of uh, material. Uh, so rather than me uh, take up the time with this, uh, I, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, well, I'm a retired doctor now. I've been retired for a number of years. And uh, uh, I've traveled fairly extensively in the world. I've written about a great number of things. Um, And I had the idea of writing a book when my French nephew uh, asked me for help uh, in the French, uh, in the Paris Medical School. He's a a medical student. uh, they have an exam on how to read uh, scientific papers and uh, scientific journals, which is actually a very good idea. I don't know if other medical schools uh, do that now. Uh, but uh, anyway, it was a very good idea, and he asked for my help. And so uh, I uh, tried to give him a few rules of thumb. They're not absolute rules, but they're rules of thumb in how to be uh, critical of uh, uh, of papers, not not necessarily cynical, not not uh, with the idea of poo-pooing uh, good things, but uh, but uh, to read things uh, with a critical eye. Uh, he passed the examination, but I don't know whether that was due to my assistance <laughs> or not. <laughs> it would be a, a scientific error to say that it was due to my. <laughs> you can take credit, go ahead, take credit for it. Go ahead. <laughs> Anyhow, so then I thought, well, I'll look at the New England Journal. And, of course, most doctors, uh, when they read medical journals, um, for understandable reasons, they're very busy people, they tend to read the uh, summary and conclusions and hope that the contents uh, justifies the conclusions. And uh, one of the problems with that is that the conclu- uh, they don't read uh, the papers line by line, only doctors specifically interested in that small particular uh, read uh, read things line by line and uh, I what I discovered is if you read things line by line you often don't necessarily agree with the conclusions uh, and 
this was really the first, actually after my retirement, was the first time I, I realized that. So uh, you, you concentrated, as I understand it, mainly on the New England Journal. Is that true? Yes, I, I just took one because I, I'm, I took the New England Journal. I suppose I could have taken the Lancet or, or some other journal, but I took the New England Journal because it's a very uh, prestigious journal. Exactly. Well, uh, so you reviewed the content of the article uh, and and uh, then uh, tried to determine if the conclusions uh, were viable and were based on fact. What 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 are some of the uh, reasons you think uh, for this reporting this these false positives uh, that are reported in these journals? Uh, well, I. I dare say some of it is just a mistake. Um, uh, there probably are no perfect studies that can't be uh, questioned. Science isn't like that. Uh, in some cases, I think people are so attached to their theories that they will uh, not so much bend the evidence as, uh, well, torture the evidence, should I say, uh, to make it accord with what they want. Uh, in one or two cases, I can't say for certain, but I suspected uh, a degree of corruption. Um, that I, you uh, you quoted Marcia Angel. Of course, she was principally concerned with the pharmaceutical industry's uh, influence on uh, medical research, but I think there are other influences as well. Um, and I suppose just uh, sloppiness. Uh, there's also the desire for certain, I mean, you have a, a desired outcome, and so that's what you get. Um, and so, you, yeah, and Del, you Dr. Dalrymple, uh, this is Dr. Smith. Um, yes. One of the issues that I came across uh, that certainly I'm sure you have also noticed was conflict of interest. Uh, there was a, a psychiatry study with the association between exercise and mental health in the Lancet back in the... Uh, August 30th of 2018, and one of the authors basically had a you know a financial interest in, in a company that was you know promoting I guess health uh, anyway. So they basically were selling the memberships or whatever to the organization. So I think conflict of interest is also a big uh, reason for corruption. Well. <clears throat> I think it probably is. It's, of course, very difficult to prove because you can't actually show that someone who has an interest is is necessarily being dishonest. But in one or two cases, uh, you know, nowadays they have to uh, they have to declare their work for drug companies. And there were a few cases where I thought it would have been quicker for the uh, for the people who wrote the paper. Uh, to write a list of the companies they hadn't worked for. Uh, they'd worked for so many. Um, and I suppose they hoped that uh, people concluded that they all cancelled uh, each other out. Um, I'm not sure that is the case. I, there was a, a, a doctor, a psychiatrist, as it happens in, in England, who was known as the universal prostitute. And he would uh, go and um, uh, extol at meetings a particular product. And the next weekend would be extolling a, uh, a competitive product with the same kind of, um, the same kind of passion. 
So the fact that he worked for more than one company didn't mean that the the interests cancelled each other out. So there is that. <laughs> there certainly that. Yes. So. Dr. Dalrymple, there. You know, we have had like Professor Peskin on uh, on our podcast, um, and and he again uh, reiterates the difference between absolute and relative risk, and yes, how the two are intermingled. Could you yeah. explain uh, what you understand by that to our audience? Well, supposing I tell you that you, if you uh, eat or refrain from eating uh, a certain thing. And you have, as a result of your action or your inaction, uh, a 1.2 times risk of contracting a disease. Uh, that's no use to you unless you know what your risk of contracting the disease is. And uh, if, for example, you had a, a three times increased risk of something, but the risk, the initial risk was one in three million, then having a three times risk would mean that it was one in a million. But obviously, it is much more dramatic to say that you have a three times increased risk than if you have a one in a million risk. And this actually is a very important thing because what I discovered was in looking at papers in the New England Journal, many of the, many of the papers gave a relative risk without giving an absolute risk and left it to the reader to work out for himself what the absolute risk was. And in almost all cases, uh, the absolute risk was trivial, even if the relative risk was great. But in any case, many of the papers, especially the epidemiological papers, uh, involved huge numbers of people. I mean, in one case, there were 60 million. And they worked out uh, relative uh, risks. And after immense, immense uh, statistical manipulations, which I, for one, am not qualified to uh, talk about, and I don't think more than one in 100 or maybe one in 1,000 uh, doctors would understand them, you then get a slight uh, rel increase in relative risk. It seems to me an absurd uh, way of uh, proceeding. If it takes 60 million people to show that there's a 1.1 or 1.2 uh, times risk of something, it really is um, pretty useless. Exactly. So we, we do talk about that on this podcast, and we also talk about the fact that if a certain drug uh, or supplement is studied with 2,400 different studies – uh, we interpret that just as a generalization that the company making that supplement had to do all those studies to get the study they needed to uh, show that there was some benefit for their supplement. Well, yes. I, uh, well I, I hesitate to say that in some ways that things are getting better, but uh, at least now uh, companies aren't allowed to suppress uh, trials of their substances that don't work. They have to publish them. And one of the problems, for example, with antidepressants was that their effect was grossly overestimated because trials in, in which they uh, failed to work or only worked marginally were simply not published, thus giving a misleading impression of the overall efficacy of the drug. And this is a fairly typical thing. Another, another very 
different, I'm sure you've talked about this before, is the, is the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. You probably talked about that. Not a lot, though, so, so I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Well, uh, statistical significance just shows that a result is unlikely, unlikely, not impossible, unlikely to have arisen by chance. So what you do is, for example, a scale, and you show that uh, drug X has a statistically significant effect on the scoring on that scale. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it has any difference from the patient's point of view absolutely no clinical significance whatsoever and yet at the end of the paper it will be said that the drugs had been shown to work Um, and this is this is quite a frequent uh, quite Uh, there was one paper for example which said that uh, which showed that a particular drug had reduced or had uh, increased the the length of time of um, relapse-free uh, period in an illness. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was by uh, 2.8 months. Um, and, but the illness, which was a fatal one, uh, remained fatal, and it did not extend life expectancy of people suffering that illness. So this was of extremely limited uh, value, at least from the point of view of a clinician. One has to remember, of course, that these drugs are very expensive and they may have terrible side effects which make life not worth living. Uh, and in fact, there was one paper where I saw that that, that was obviously the case. So uh, it's very important not just to read the summary because... Uh, oh, sorry, the conclusions. Uh, they're often... Uh, they're not. They're not false. They're misleading. Absolutely. I, I'm. It might. I was. Well, we're going to talk about this next week. But you might be stunned to find out that uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, they. There was an examination re- recently of eighty-seven thousand pages of research documents. Uh, yeah. Coke's research contracts allow the big soda company to. Re- they. They determined that the kind. The. The. The research that. Uh, has to do with Coke. Uh, they have the uh, ability to review the data before it gets out, and they can kill any study at any time for any reason. Uh, so the one author that I'm reading, and I'm not, uh, we'll talk about this next week. It says Coca-Cola is only interested in science when it can be manipulated to convince Americans to buy more of its products. Trusting them on nutrition science is like trusting Joe Camel to run a tobacco study. So uh, they're 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 they but are they. Me. Yeah, and they like you say you know read the fine print. Okay, see who funded the study. Uh, yeah. It's really important. I mean, there are of course funded studies which find genuine things. So I don't I don't uh, one can't just always impute the worst possible behavior to people. Uh, but you have to be skeptical. And in the case right. of Coca-Cola, uh, I wouldn't drink it for uh, for reasons other than my health. But there you are. That's personal taste. <laughs> well, we call it uh, America's uh, stealth weapon to get everybody sick and, <laughs> and around the world. 
So, uh, uh, you, you know, you bring bring up an interesting uh, uh, topic. Uh, in 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 the uh, is this a, the book that you wrote? Is it how how big is it, and why should our our our, our uh, listeners buy it? Well, it's false uh, positive. It's about two hundred and seventy uh, pages. What I've done is take every week. I read, uh, I took a paper or some commentary uh, from the New England Journal and wrote an essay of, uh, well, about 1,400 words on that week's contents. And it varies. Some of it's about uh, the the social commentary of the New England Journal, which I'm afraid all tends to one kind of point of view. There's not much debate anyway in the pages, if you look, I mean, it's a bit like reading Pravda. But but some was, uh, I took a, I took a paper, I was interested, for example, in the question of prostate cancer. Uh, I've reached the age at which that has some kind of practical interest for me. And, um, and uh, again, I I thought that the, the stuff was pretty poor on it. So, Dr. Dalrymple, I just got to ask you, has, has your invitations to speak at medical <laughs> uh, groups diminished since this book came out? Well, I have very few anyway, so uh, <laughs> okay. I wonder you, why. You, you cannot have less than zero invitations. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have a previous experience of, 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 a, uh, of a kind of medical polemic, I suppose you would call it. I, I suggested that... Uh, uh, that heroin addiction uh, was not a genuine illness, and to treat it as if it were uh, something that just happens to people, like Parkinson's disease just happens to people, uh, is and anatomy is possibly false. And I provided, I think, fairly compelling reasons for believing this, but I'm afraid it was greeted with complete silence. So, uh, wow! I expect uh, complete silence. Silence is a, a very effective rhetorical tool. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, so we've been, uh, uh, let, let, let me just, let me just take one second, yeah. Jerry. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Dalrymple. Dalrymple. Dr. Dalrymple has uh, uh, consented to being on our program today, and he's calling in from Great Britain. So there's a occasional break up in the audio. Ladies and gentlemen, just bear with us and. Uh, it, it clears right up. Okay, Jerry. Yeah, basically, um, how does the average physician, you know, uh, protect himself, uh, you know, in trying to keep up with the literature? Uh, and, and, you know, he's confronted with this so-called prestigious journal. And, you know, for after listening to you, he's better off reading a comic book. Uh, well, I wouldn't go quite so far as to, as to say that, and I don't want to give the impression that nothing of any value is ever published in the New England Journal, far from that, or the Lancet, or any other such publication. So that, that it's not true um, that that nothing uh, that nothing is of value. I think uh, someone pointed this out to me. Um, actually. Uh, it's not so much that people read the or should read the uh, the journals and believe everything they read in it as if it were holy writ, um, which can be regarded as, uh, but they talk amongst themselves and they talk about their experience and so on. 
and gradually things do sort themselves out eventually uh, the cost of the patients but still it, it does happen so uh, I think overall overall there is progress uh, but it's not just a straight upward um, uh, slope um, and I think it's extremely difficult for doctors actually as I said I don't think many doctors uh, read anything unless they are super specialists then they probably do have time to examine the literature of their very small area of interest uh, more critically but most doctors just don't have the time to so they have to take a consensus uh, a view or take what's written in the journals so it is very difficult well, it's very interesting because uh, uh, Brian Peskin, who we've interviewed several times, uh, makes the the comment that uh, the doctors are literally 20 years at minimum behind the actual research. So uh, that's kind of a frightening um, commentary that the, the practicing doctors today are actually working uh, in a, well, with antiquated an technology. It could be an advantage, of course, if the research is no good. <laughs> you know, we never thought of that. <laughs> but you know, I, I, mean, I think I think it, the latest is not necessarily the best. <laughs> well, I be think there the, 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 there is a downside to this that uh, we you know that I think is really important, and and it, it's almost like a medical gate. Because young physicians uh, looking at these papers, you know, in the United States, I don't know in Great Britain, but there's a at least a hundred and six thousand deaths from appropriately prescribed medications, and oh, yeah. a lot of these medications were given like like you know you mentioned antidepressants, but there's others were given the thumbs up in studies in the New England Journal. And the, and the young physician doesn't know how to interpret those studies or doesn't read the conflicts of interest. I mean, it does have an effect uh, uh, on the population. Yeah. Well, I think the, the most startling episode of this, to me anyway, and, uh, is the episode of opioid epi uh, overdoses in the United States. Uh, and the history of that is, to me, extremely interesting. In 19, I, I don't know whether you want me to continue. Uh, whether we please, have time. Please, if you have the time, no. please do. Doctor, Doctor Dalrymple. Hello. <laughs> did we, did we lose him? Uh, he, I think he so. Was called. Yeah, I don't hear him. Is 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 yeah? He's uh, I don't know. Let's see if he'll call. If he'll dial back in. Well, it's a, it's just an interesting uh, uh, that someone of his caliber and uh, of his ability to, to write uh, went ahead and and put this in a book because, as you said, he's he's not, he's not going to be too popular. And and physicians, I hate to tell you, are trained to pay homage to these peer-reviewed published studies. Uh, and uh, you know, in, in, you just read you you read the. the the uh, conclusion or you read the abstract that, well, yeah, I'm going to try that in the next patient I see. Well, there's a lots of reasons not, not to do that. Okay. And, well, you and, know, perfect example. I think I maybe mentioned in a previous um, uh, show that we had uh, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, which, you know, what we're discussing 
and it was on a a, a pharmaceutical grade fish oil because a friend of mine yeah. who's a physician sent me the copy. And uh, just like Dow Ripple said, you know, you, you just can't look at the conclusions. Well, but in in the article itself, and, and I think I shared it with you, it specifically said that the people who took the refined pharmaceutical grade fish oil had a greater probability of winding up in the hospital with atrial fibrillation and bleeding problems versus the placebo group, which you know puts a big doubt in my head. You know, what kind of positive finding is that? And then on page six or seven, I think you pointed out to me that the advantage over preventing cardiovascular uh, incidents with this, uh, I call it motor oil, this refined pharmaceutical-grade fish oil, was 0.9% advantage. Yeah, I that mean, was so the you're... absolute risk. Yeah, the absolute. Yeah. And, I mean, it was ridiculous. And 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 at those huge doses they were giving them, and uh, you know, as we said, and Dr. Peskin, uh, you know, pointed out to us, uh, you know, that that should not have come as a surprise. And there has but been, the, I, I, I sent Professor Peskin three studies that were just reported in, in various medical journals here in the United States. Not one of them showed that these huge doses of of uh, what did he call them, fish antifreeze. Any freeze right. fish for that has had had any benefit at all, and yours well, yours joke, was even more recent. Yeah, well, the joke of the whole thing is, um, I believe there was a conflict of interest because they were naming a um, a product in there that they're basically trying to promote to sell the darn thing. So to me, that was a conflict of interest, uh, and. Um, you know, people or doctors get a full sense of security, you know, from that nonsense. Absolutely. So, I mean, and again, it goes to one of the premises of this program is take control of your own body. And listen to this show. Dr. Dalrup, I think he just got back on to me. Let me see if that's him. Yeah. You did it. Sorry about that. No we problem. thought it was MI5 we, 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 that canceled you. <laughs> we had, well, we probably the NSA and CIA listen to programs like this. Who uh, you don't know our program where we do preach a lot of alternative medicine, so we're due to get hit. So you so you were going to talk about the opioids, and I, I'd be interested to hear what your 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 opinions on that. Well, in in 1980, there was a letter in the from by Paul Porter and Jick, who said that uh, very few opioid, opiate or opioid addicts came out having treated with uh, morphine or strong opiates uh, for acute, uh, for example, a heart attack or something like that. They didn't become addicts when they're treated in hospital uh, for those conditions. Uh, which was perfectly true. And in those days, there was a reluctance of doctors to give uh, opiates, even people who would have benefited from them because they were so afraid that they would become addicts. And they would even deny sometimes to dying patients because they might become addicts before they died. Um, and that was perfectly correct. And then years later, uh, this recommendation was used to insinuate that patients with, shall we say, low back pain or other less 
specific uh, causes of pain uh, could be prescribed opioids or opiates uh, with because they wouldn't become addicted. As we know, uh, that was true. And actually, I would have thought that a doctor with a life experience should have known that it wasn't true. Um, but now, of course, we have, or in the United States, there are millions of addicts. And the total number of deaths from overdoses of these drugs exceeds all military deaths military deaths since the end of the Second World War. In fact, it's more than twice as many. So it, it is a bit of a disaster. Uh, and it, it stems, I think, uh, from, uh, from a wrong reading of a very small uh, article in the uh, New England Journal. And ah. this shows how misinterpretation can have disastrous effects. I think now, of course, the the epidemic is so great that it's escaped a kind of medical control. Uh, but it, but here is something. Here is a very startling example of how misinterpretation uh, or misunderstanding can lead to disaster. Yeah, we uh, we haven't had uh, a lot of discussion on the opioids, except for the fact that it happened and that. Uh, uh, my personal opinion is that the doctors themselves, along with the help from the drug companies, uh, uh, created this epidemic uh, because uh, I'm, I'm also retired here in, in, in South Florida, and I do have a hobby of golfing, and I can't tell you the number of uh, people I golf with that go in for an arthroscopic knee surgery and come out with 30 uh, Oxycontin tablets and 20 Percodans and uh, just yeah. really uncalled for, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, they can sell well, them on eBay, the, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, uh, the doctors have done that. I uh, some doctors, I think, was, uh, were corrupt, of course. Uh, I dare say, in some places, they prescribe because they're afraid of their patients. Certainly, that's yeah. true in England. Uh, well, I. I um, I, I, I take it a step further. It's just easier for them to give them a prescription and not have them call them at, at you know all hours. Uh, it's just easier to sedate them with the opioid and, uh, than than to really be a physician. That's uh, that's, that's my opinion. Yeah, well, Doctor Dalrymple, wouldn't the, the National Health Service monitor uh, opioid prescriptions uh, more carefully and uh, well, I guess I maybe it... sanction doctors that they're beyond this you know a reasonable limit. I think it does. Yes, I, I think it, it's, uh, that's one of the reasons why it hasn't uh, it hasn't gone so far, and I hope it doesn't go so far. I mean, I hope doctors, not only in Britain but in Europe, uh, learn from the American experience. However, my 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 view of pain clinics, I mean, I saw it myself, was that they were very liberal prescribers, despite the fact that there was very little evidence that prescribing these drugs did people much good, and since they are potentially very harmful, it seemed to me that they should not have been prescribed as liberal as they liberally as they were. Unfortunately, now I think it's got beyond the control, as I said, of doctors because things like uh, drugs um, uh, like fentanyl are coming in uh, illegally from China and 
other places. So uh, even if doctors were now to start being uh, more careful with prescriptions, it's probably uh, it might be too late. Uh, it's not a reason not to be careful, of course, but but uh, as it were, the the genie is out of the bottle. Well, you know what's very interesting. There are you know alternatives in treating uh, you know chronic pain. Uh, I, I recently integrated qigong acupuncture into my practice, and recently had a patient who had 38 years of uh, chronic pain from a car accident where he hit his head on the windshield and. Uh, you know, doing a cranial manipulation and then qigong acupuncture, uh, the pain was totally gone. Um, so, unfortunately, the average physician is not skilled or aware of these alternative therapies that can alleviate pain non-invasively. Yes, of course, you'd have to uh, study them scientifically as well to show that they work. But, uh, but anyway, I, I mean, what one can say is what I think one can say without much fear of contradiction is that the drugs that have been given have not done as much good, just to put it very mildly. Although I must say that when I've expressed this view in uh, on the internet and so on, and I have, um, you always get people saying uh, you, you're a uh, you're an unfeeling monster. Uh, I want my drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, uh, anyway, I, the, the other I, thing that I think was very striking was the slowness of the response to this situation in, in America. I, I think I've been um, banging on about it for some time, but the, the response to what was clearly happening was very slow and very, very muted. And, Nobody took any notice of it until fairly recently, I would say, even though it's been developing uh, since just before the year 2000. Well, do you think the fact that there's generating a lot of income is a reason for the slowness? <laughs> I, well, I'm always a bit, I'm a bit hesitant to, well, to, to ascribe the worst motives to people. I mean, uh, I'm sure that was true for for some, uh, but it wouldn't explain it all. Part of it, of course, was probably because the doctors who didn't do it uh, weren't really interested in what other people were doing. So, I mean, it's not that every doctor in the United States has has, has behaved like this. Well, I think when it comes to drugs, anyway, the medical literature is is suspect and it's unreliable. And I think our young physicians who now are are trained in our schools here in the United States, where 78% of the board of directors are big pharmaceutical executives, uh, I think they really have to uh, have a a second education in uh, and how to read journals and, and how to think uh, critically. And I don't think our young doctors are, are have the ability to have any critical thinking uh, like an engineer would or uh, someone trained in, yeah. in, uh, in, you know, in that field. Yes, well, I mean, there's an obvious solution that, that they should uh, uh, read my book or at least buy it. Um, uh, well, why, why don't we why don't we tell them about this book again? It's called False Where Positive. Where can they get it? Yeah, oh, well, the year Amazon, of, our, of course. 
Yeah, it's called false positive, a year of error, omission, and political correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. It, it is uh, the publisher is Encounter Books, and of course Amazon uh, has uh, has it. Uh, I, I rec- I'm, I'm going to get a copy. I'm going to recommend uh, to our, our listeners that they, they get a copy. And if you know anyone that's going into a medical school or even a veterinary school or uh, any of the uh, natural sciences, it's, it would be a good gift for them. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, I, didn't th- I didn't think I'd get anything negative about that. <laughs> Uh, so, Dr. you know, Dr. one of the Dr. other problems, uh, Dr. Yeah, Dr. Dalrymple, is um, the physicians are not trained to really see the underlying problem of the pain. Um, you know, I just had a young woman in today for two years. She's been running around to doctors and spent, you know, probably over $25,000 uh, looking for solutions and pain. And she had fallen two years ago while walking her sister's dog and hit her chin on the, the payment. And she had excruciating, you know, trigeminal uh, path pain. Long story short, um, I adjusted her cranium and the pain totally disappeared. I mean, the woman mm. like f- was crying. She couldn't believe that she spent two years in agonizing pain and no one had any clue why it happened. Um, so I think the problem today is that there's no uh, digging lateral holes, meaning they're not understanding craniopathy, osteopathy, uh, nutrition, to look at the problem from a different perspective as opposed to just treating the symptom. Well, I think one, one, of, the pro- uh, one of the problems, or, well, there are two problems. One is that uh, doctors have very little time. So you, don't, you often don't have much time to, um, uh, with patients. Uh, in Britain, I think the average uh, consultation time for uh, for a general practitioner for family doctors between six and eight minutes. Wow! And he's got, to, and he's got to, <laughs> You can't even get a, a prayer in in six and eight minutes. <laughs> well, you can see a lot of stuff on a computer in six or eight. And, yeah. And most of them look at the computer most of the time. Um, uh, but also, of course, they're increasingly protocol uh, driven, uh, so that they are told what to do when X occurs, you must do Y, and if that doesn't work, you must start again and start with A and then B. So actually, uh, thinking deeply is not uh, about patients, is is not encouraged in such a situation. Well, Dr. Dalrymple, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. I, would, I, I, I hope we would have a follow-up uh, interview in, in six months or so when we see uh, the feedback from your, your, your book and uh, see if you can survive at the, uh, you, 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 <laughs> the onslaught, see, if you, see how your social life is going. Yeah, and do they sell uh, yeah. Kevlar vests over in the UK? Well, they're not, they don't <laughs> carry guns over there, do they? <laughs> I'm in France at the moment. Um, oh, okay. I'm calling you from France. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I think we we gave our audience a uh, an idea of what to expect from uh, your book on on Amazon. Uh, it's published under Dr. Dalrymple, D-A-L-R-Y-M-P-L-E. 
And Dr. Dalrymple, I, I often tell the story that my parents moved uh, 13 times when I was a child, and I found them every time. And I find that you publish, <laughs> you publish under a lot of different names, so I have to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank thank you, sir, Doctor Doctor Jerry. Any any final uh, questions for for Doctor? Well, I always tell patients to never trust a doctor who has dying plants in the reception room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think our our audience, what we do here on Dr. Ron Unfiltered Uncensored is try and have people think critically and evaluate and get other opinions and uh, don't just because the doctor is sitting on his high horse uh, in, with a lot of published uh, papers that you know don't don't just take that for granted and i think works like yours and and other podcasts like ours can make uh, our audience and people think and if they think they think they'll have a a better outcome with their health yeah and I another so. i think little pearl is we had a compounding pharmacist on several times and basically as a patient uh, if you don't understand the medications you're being prescribed, if you have access to a compounding pharmacist, uh, they could, you know, sit down with you and sort it out to see if what was prescribed is really going to be to your benefit. So you really have to be the CEO of your own health, as Dr. Ron always says, and and be proactive instead of just uh, being a sheeple and being led to slaughter. Yes. Well, I I hope I haven't done that in my career. Um, <laughs> Well, Dr. Dalrymple, thank you so much for taking the time. Enjoy the the, the beautiful French uh, countryside. I hope you're in the countryside. I'm in and, Paris, actually. Oh, you're in Paris. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it's terribly hot. It's very hot. <laughs> so it's well, been 100 gonna... Oh, my gosh. Wow, that is hot. Yeah, I hope you have air conditioning. You, you, more... you have good wine there to ease the pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's better than opioids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Thank you so much, Doctor. And we hope to have you on again. And we will promote this program, promote your book. We believe in in the premise of your book. And uh, we hope to have you on again. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. Enjoy. So that, ladies and gentlemen, we had been talking to Dr. Dalrymple. Uh, He is a retired physician uh, who wrote a book about the New England Journal of Medicine. And we have uh, talked about, you know, about journal articles and how there's a lot of them are paid for. Uh, So, you know, he's put it down in black and white, and we'll see if he pays the price for that. Uh, And this was just an extra program that Dr. Jerry and I brought to you today because we felt that uh, this information is is really critical for you, too. And just so you know, uh, we are on CastBox now. Uh, What is that? That is uh, uh, an app that integrates with Waze, the uh, GPS uh, application. And if you're driving along and you don't have to make a lot of – turns, you can actually listen to uh, our episodes of Dr. Ron Unfiltered Uncensored uh, with this cast box addition uh, uh, to Waze. So besides being on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio and a host of other uh, uh, apps that you can play in your car, now we, have, we are integrated with Waze. 
So, Dr. Jerry, I think, you know, we, we accomplished what we wanted to do today. So uh, uh, I think we can just uh, call it a day and uh, uh, see what we're going to do for next week. Uh, I've, it depends, of course, Dr. Jerry's uh, uh, he, he's he's good with anything, but uh, you're, yours truly is is just about is moving. And well, you're doing the guy that's under the gun, so it all depends I, I am on your situation. <laughs> exactly, but you 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 always rise to the occasion, so I thank you for that. I, I was thinking if I have time next week or next Tuesday at our regular scheduled time, we could, maybe could talk about dementia again because uh, we haven't talked about it, and we haven't talked about how certain drugs can really jack you up. Uh, and make you have dementia, uh, uh, and it could be curable. And we, you know, we, I, I, I want to maybe we'll get Doctor. Uh, uh, oh my God, Doctor Wong one too, because we've been going back and forth about pot use, and he agrees with me that heavy pot use can cause brain damage. It gets into the meninges of the brain and actually stains them brown. And that brown never goes away, and. Uh, there's articles coming out now where regular cannabis use uh, can alter the brain region tied to cognitive control. So we'll talk a little bit about dementia and cognition next week. Uh, and uh, But you're going to have to stay tuned and see if we can fit that, that show in. So, Dr. Jerry, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. It was fun. I uh, always learned something. And uh, more importantly is our patients uh, or our listening audience, rather, you know, wake up to – the broken medical system that they're being confronted with. So that's the key point. Well put, well put. And with that thought, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll see you on the radio Tuesday at seven. Have a great ciao. Ciao. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Dr. Ron unfiltered, uncensored with Dr. Ron and Dr. Jerry. We are here each and every week to bring you medical news that you can use and medical news that you will not hear on the mainstream media. We hope you enjoy our podcast and we hope to see you on the radio next week. Have a great one. Ciao.